Welcome to episode 294 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. You know, for more than five years, Stageworthy has been a labor of love for me. I don't make any money from this podcast, and the only time I ever have ads in the podcast are through reciprocal agreements. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting it. You can do that by making a donation, either one time or continuing, in the tip jar. I've put a link to that in the show notes, and you can find those at the website or on your podcast app. Or you can now buy some merch at the new online store, shop.stageworthyproductions.com. In the store, you'll find Stageworthy t-shirts, mugs, stickers, as well as merch from some of my other projects. All of your purchases and tip jar donations go towards Stageworthy and help me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. And if you can't donate or buy from the store, please consider rating and reviewing the show. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review right in the podcast app. If you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, you can still review the show by going to podchaser.com, searching for Stageworthy, and rating the podcast there. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 294 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is multidisciplinary artist and recent Hamilton Arts Awards winner, Karen Anchetta. If I was to ask you, Karen, uh, how you describe your artistic practice, or to put it another way, if you had an elevator pitch to, to describe to somebody yourself as an artist, what would you say? Okay. So I would say that my um, uh, me as an artist, I'm like, a, like the ultimate collage. I am the sum total of everything that I've experienced, everything up until this point, it all funnels down everything from my cultural um, theater, working with youth, working with community groups, new play development, um, my customer service skills come in handy, being a mom, uh, everything, everything. I am amazed. There are some things that I take on and I think, oh my God, I could not do this if I didn't have that piece. <laughs> it's really interesting how how sometimes things that we don't expect to come into our artistic practice will suddenly, like, like for example, customer service. I've worked in customer service for over 20 years, and one never knows when those particular skills are just going to be needed. Oh, my gosh. I feel like customer service, like, it, it's like, when I'm doing customer service, I used to work at this place called Poke and I would in the farmer's market and I would see like sometimes 200 people a day and it's the same script like over and over and over again when, mm -hmm. and you've got like a, you know, short-term objective and a long-term objective and you're just <laughs> playing the same scene over and over again, every 
three minutes Mm -hmm. for eight hours. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) and trying to make it fresh, trying to make it fresh. Like uh, everything, um, everything overlaps for me. Yeah, I always, you know, what's interesting about that is, is I think that, that the lessons that one learns as an actor, for example, come in really handy in customer service because somebody who, who didn't know how to, you know, repeatedly play the same scene (laughs) and make it feel like it's the first time they're playing that scene in a customer service situation, it would sound like they were just doing it for the thousandth time. And for an actor or performer, you can make it so that it sounds like it's the first time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes on those long days when it's hot and sticky, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, reset. Hi, how are Mm you? (laughs) and that genuine curiosity and really trying to connect with someone in three seconds, I think Mm -hmm. is, is that a customer service skill or is that an acting skill? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it goes hand in hand. In a lot of ways, I think it does. But then I think there's a lot of people who work in customer service who can't do that. So (laughs) is that, are you able to do that because you're an actor or are you able to do it because uh, of your years of experience in customer service, or is it the combination of the two? Oh my God. Huh. I think actually, I think it, I think it is because I'm an actor. I have to say, I think that that ability to reset and to make it fresh and to Mm. connect for the first time and to find something to love and to connect with a person. I think that's the actor in me. Hmm. Yeah, that's def- definitely fully engaged. So speaking of the actor in you, what what is your what is your theater origin story? <laughs> if you were to describe, you know, what what drew you to the theater that that made you start down the path to be the person the the performer you are now. What was that? Oh my gosh, I think it was in grade 5. Grade <laughs> 5 in my orange fuzzy house coat and my kerchief and uh, it was the night before Christmas. <laughs> and I think I came out and did a yawn. And I think CHCH TV was there. And I think that was it. I was like, mm. yeah, this is it. And then from there, uh, I mean, like my sister and I, my sister uh, is a musician, Mary and Chetta. And we always sang. Like we, like, you know, we were Filipino. We grew up on mm. music. We did karaoke. Um, and the music from there like expanded into musicals. I was mm. obsessed with musicals. And then in theater, um, sorry, at theater class at my high school, a lovely, lovely teacher named Bill Cook, he exposed us to theater and we went to England where all we did mm. was watch two shows a day. Wow. And for 10 days. And then actually wow. we kind of snuck into the pub at night. But it was amazing. And then from there, I saw Miss Saigon. Like I saw mm. the original cast, uh, except for Lea Salanka. And I, that was it. I was like, mm. I need to be in Miss Saigon. That's what I want to do. <laughs> it didn't happen. But, and I thought I was going to go into musical theater. But then uh, I ended up being an actor um, and taking classical theater at Ryerson. Mm. So I guess that's a bit of my origin story. Yeah. Um- you know, I, I always found as, as a child, I think that my first exposure to theater was through uh, 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 original cast recordings. <gasps> mm. 
before I saw a play, I heard the music. And then I started to realize, oh, these things all tell a story when you put them together. Yes. You know, I, once I could read, I would read the synopsis on the back and try to figure out all the nuances, how these things fit together. And that was really my start into, into like theater, though this is a play. This is what it's like. Of course, at the time, I thought that all theater was musicals because that's all I knew. Uh-huh. But I very quickly learned that there was more to it than just that. And, and I think sometimes musical theater can be like a gateway drug to other <laughs> theater. I think so. It's just so pumped up. Oh, actually, we used to do, um, we used to do this thing in high school called Showstoppers. Mm. And we were like a little cabaret group. <laughs> and mm. we used to wear these glittery butterfly tops from the 80s. <laughs> and we used to go out as a troupe. And we used to do Broadway tunes. Oh, my gosh. Mm. I think that was like, uh, yeah, I think that's where it, it kind of bit also for me. Um, that I think also like just going to school shows. Um, mm. I just have this like strong memory of like sitting there in the house. And my favorite part is always when the lights go down because mm-hmm. you just know that you're going to go for a ride. Like it's yeah. just the beginning. Here we go. Mm-hmm. I think really clever shows and sometimes you see it in the big budget musicals, but a really clever show somehow sets the stage for that moment mm. you know um uh you know they have like either they have their 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 drop in the front with like a logo or something they play some lights on it or something a really smart show has that moment um in hamilton they don't really put the lights down but they've amped the anticipation because there's no curtain <laughs> You know, you sort of Gosh. see it and you're like, oh, there's things I could see the set. I could see the things. And then all of a sudden it starts. You're so right. I feel like it's been so long since I've see, been in a theater. But yeah, yes, yeah, that's, that's totally true. There are a lot of places here that, that don't mm. have a curtain. Hmm. Yeah, but I think that there's there's definitely something about that, like the promise of something interesting happening. Oh, yes. Something definitely is going to happen, right? It's like, whoa, mm-hmm. we're going on a ride for sure. Yeah. 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 And that's that's certainly like a great – that really sort of amps up that that anticipation as people come in, you know? Oh, yeah. I miss that. Don't you? <laughs> oh, my God, I do. You know, it's funny because <laughs> I mentioned Hamilton, but, you know, it's I, – I, you know, I watched – I'd seen Hamilton live and I watched it in the – when it came out on Disney Plus last year. And – all it really did was really I mean, it was fine, fun to see it, but it really made me miss being in a theater. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <sighs> now, have you have you in all of this time this 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 time when we haven't been able to be in theaters? Have you have you dipped into digital performance at all? Have you been involved in any any like Zoom plays or anything like that? Oh my god, I I feel like I'm just like chained to my computer. I I. <laughs> I don't know if I didn't realize that this would happen, but I've just been involved in so many different things because of mm. digital, digital magic um, in all different capacities. Like, yeah. um, I, I, I mean, in the past, I mean, I live in Hamilton. So if I want to go to Toronto to see theater, see my colleagues, see some amazing work, I it's a day trip. 
Yeah. You know? Like I have to, oh, okay, okay, okay. And I, I felt really bad that I couldn't come out all the time. You know, I've got kids. And I remember the first time that I turned on the computer and got my digital ticket. And then I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to put dinner on really quickly here. And then I could go back to watching. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I like this. Like I didn't have to drive mm. all the way in. And I can, I mean, I know it's not the same. It's not the same, but it's, it's, I, I've seen more than I have in a long time. And I've participated. Mm. People will say, Hey, can you, can you come online? Um, you know, there's a, there's a, what do you call it? a new play development uh, thing that's happening. I'd love you to mm. sit in. And that's like, okay, mm. sure. And I didn't have to go anywhere. It was like, <laughs> all right. And here you go. I'll send you my notes. Like that was, that was pretty cool. Mm. Um, I, f- I, yeah, I, right now I'm, my head is spinning. There's a lot of things happening digitally mm. in my world right now. Um, everything from, Let's see, community engaged art uh, with different different groups, some in Toronto, some spread out. Um, I've got storytelling things that are happening happening here in Hamilton. Um, I was doing vocal coaching for Humber College. I'm going to be adjudicating for the NTS Drama Fest. Uh, I am, what else am I doing? They're just, oh, I'm, I'm working for... Um, just all these things that I've been able to engage with just by sitting in my little corner and my computer. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like, Mm. I wasn't this busy before. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's, as much as we all miss being in theaters, there's something about this doing things digitally that has in many ways opened up the world yes. as far as uh, participation goes. Um, for example, being you being in Hamilton and being able to participate in shows that are in, or, you know, to, to watch shows in Toronto to, or, or wh- wherever else they might be. I really feel like if we don't keep that going somehow, we're missing out. We're missing an opportunity to both open up theater for both the rest of the country and the world so that we're no longer siloed in our little cities, but also we're opening up theater to people who can't necessarily get there. We're taking the ableism out of theater attendance, for example. I agree. I totally think you're right. I think that, um, I think it just opens it up. It makes it super accessible. Yeah. Um, I hope they, I know it's like, it's like an extra department that has to happen, mm. but I kind of hope it does. I kind of like how the Hamilton Fringe, for example, has has something. They had a, the Frostbites Festival in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, it's site specific, mm. and for this year, they they had you know you'd you'd buy your ticket, you'd log on, and you kind of had a virtual option. Or you could have a like a walking tour option, and I thought that hmm. was really cool, hmm. you know. And and I like I like that there's that option. I mean, I think that people will have to like I'm doing an audio play right now, and I'm thinking, okay, like they could they could experience it online, but mm-hmm. what do we need to do to get them to get out of their house? What is it? I mean, we'll have to work harder to get them into the theater in some ways. 
Um, you know, I think I, I I have to jump again. I was just having this conversation uh, just the other week with somebody about about how I think we think that hmm. that we'd have to work harder to get people to come out. But how many times do we go to see our favorite musician to play our favorite songs? Um, there are plenty of, of of podcasts that have live events, um, and people will go to hear their favorite bits or even, even, you know, comedians will perform. And if you do everybody's favorite bit from your last album, they'll go crazy. Like they want to hear it. Oh yeah. And so I feel like the story that we've told ourselves in the theater is that if we give it to them online, they'll never come and see it live. But I think that the, the the fact that people go see their uh, a musician play exactly the same songs that they could hear on the album live sort of gives us the opportunity to 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 break out of that that story that we tell ourselves and to give it to them live but then offer them something like sure you heard this but here's what it could look like hmm. you know to to expand beyond just the the audio and to give them some kind of spectacle and, and whatever it is like to, to bring it to life out of their minds and on the stage. Not only that, I think that like we're so starved now for the mingling of energy in a room. <laughs> At least mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. am. I mean, I thought I, I thought I was a bit of a hermit <laughs> actually, <laughs> but I've been so starved for that, you know, like for that mingling of energy in a room. Mm. So that is like part of the reason why I would go. Like, yeah. I remember seeing, um, Prairie Nurse at the Blythe Festival um, by Mary Beth Badian. And, mm-hmm. and there was two Filipina nurses on, uh, on stage and there's, and then there's a Scottish doctor and the Filipinas are going, I don't understand what he's saying. Can you understand what he's saying? And sometimes <laughs> it's in Tagalog and sometimes it's in English. And where I was sitting, I could see the whole audience and I could see the Filipino patrons laughing <laughs> and then I could, and then, and then the, um, the doctors also were like, they, they couldn't, they couldn't tell them apart. And then, <laughs> and, and then you could see the other, the other patrons that were like, you know, resonating with the, with the Scottish doctor on stage, you could see. And so that was like part of it, like part of mm. being in the audience and watching that, that was, I wouldn't get that, you know, if I was sitting here watching it on screen. No, no. And that's, I think. You know, I, I think that that a lot of us who've, you know, if you spend a lot of days like I do in video meetings, it's hard to take that same video format and treat it like theater. Mm. But I kind of feel like once we're back in the theater, if we were to just set up a couple of cameras in the theater, we can like have a live presentation. People can watch it at home. If, if they can't come to the theater, but they may also having seen it and had that taste of what the live experience is like, then they maybe want to come and see it live. Oh, I totally agree. I saw Bug um, here at home mm-hmm. on my computer, and there's this beautiful shot from above hmm. uh, where the main character is lying on the ground, and it's so beautiful. Hmm. And I kept thinking, oh, I never would have saw this from this vantage point if if I didn't see it online. And uh, 
so there were things. The camera work was so good. Jessica Lee Fleming, mm. uh, it's her. Her, her camera work was so great and I mm. really enjoyed it. And, and yes, like when it, one day when it comes back into the theater, I will definitely go again to see it from that vantage point. So maybe yeah. it's like about seeing it twice. I don't know. You know, I know people, you know, I, I'm not going to name any names because they shouldn't do this, but they'll watch musicals on YouTube and they're all terrible pirated versions of whatever is a hit on Broadway. But if they have the opportunity to get a ticket, even though they've seen it, they'll go. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's not the same. It's not the same. No. And I think that, that deep down, we kind of know that. We know, even though we can hear the audience, that the, that the experience is completely different for the people who are there. Mm. That's so true. I'm thinking about uh, the Fringe Festival uh, mm -hmm. show that I'm doing with um, uh, Porchlight Theater, which is a theater mm -hmm. that I founded with Aaron Jan. And we're doing, we're working um, this project called the House Key Project. We're hoping to make it a yearly thing. Mm -hmm. um, this summer, we had planned to do a full out in-person, in-studio um, thing with four youth from mm -hmm. Hamilton. But, well, obviously, we can't gather. <laughs> yeah. So we've postponed it because, the, like, the, the, you know, the in-studio thing and that it's just not the same. We, yeah. we want to have that experience. Uh, we were lucky enough to get funding um, from Theatre Aquarius Theatre School. And we decided, all right, let's do like a, an audio thing. And so we've been working with them. I've got like four brilliant high school and uh, first year um, art college uh, uh, participants, storytellers. Bruce Wu, Schaller, Sewell, Mattia Arkunda, and Sunny Duan. And we're doing a show, um, and it's an audio show, and we're going to put it in different areas of Hamilton. Hmm. But I was telling them about the full program next year, and they were all stoked. They were like, ooh, that's <laughs> so cool. And I was thinking, wouldn't that be interesting if we took these audio plays but then did them next year. What what if we did them again? But did the hmm. the you know a, a stage version of it? Sure. Yeah, to have I've been total different I, experience. Yeah, I did. I did um, last year at Christmas. I I, I presented a, a six part audio drama that I'd, I'd created, and it's always been in my mind that I would perform that live in person at oh. some point. That. I think that, you know, hearing it is one thing, but the experience of having that story told in person is different enough that to me, yeah, you can go and listen to that now, but it's going to be different and, and there, it will be more of a more spectacle. There will be something different about seeing it performed in person. And I think that you approach it differently too, right? I think so. So, you know, when you create it for audio, you're thinking about it as an audio, you know, then you take that same script and then you're like, okay, so now we're in the world. What's changed? How do we present this? It's completely different, and yet adds so much. Well, that's a that would be a great experience, actually. Like for these youth, thinking that we should do it. Mm. What do you think? Should we do it? I, I think absolutely. I think that that um, in fact, giving them you, you know you think about about taking it. You know, now they've had one experience of doing it. Now they think, oh yeah, I know that. That's easy. And now we're going to give them the same material and have them perform it in front of people. And that's, that's completely new. And it'll breathe new life into it for, for people who maybe thought, ah, oh, that's, I've done that, but no, you haven't. I kind of wonder too, if the same audience were to 
experience the audio version, like, would they come out, you know, to see the physical version? And like, I'll be curious to hear what they, what that experience would be like to see both actually. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that people do uh, for the same reason that I think that people go to see um, their favorite band or, or, yeah. you know, if that band didn't play their favorite song that they could listen to on the, in their, in their car on the way home, they'd be pissed. Yeah. That's you, we have that desire to, even if we're familiar with it, we want to, we want to experience it again in a new way. Hmm. That's so true because yeah, I could listen to it, you know, on online, but then when I'm in a crowd and everybody's mm-hmm. singing their heart out, you can, yeah. And everybody feels the same. There's something magical. There's something so validating. There's something that, yeah, it's totally different. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. And the audience, the, the audience experience is very different because when they listen to it audio in the audio format, they probably listen to it alone. Yes. And maybe a little absently, maybe they were doing something else. Maybe they weren't. But now when they're listening to it in a group, then that that group dynamic that comes in, that thing that we want when we're gathered in the room comes into play and they'll experience it in a new, fresher way. It's actually the missing part. I'm finding mm-hmm. with my storytelling groups, whether I'm working with the Caregivers Association through Quentin Bayan, where we work with Filipino caregivers, or whether it's the youth from Porchlight Theater or mm. the South Asian women's groups, I work with them one-on-one mm. online. And then we, we tell the story that can be so intimate, you know, mm. a little slice of a remembrance, a little slice of themselves. And then I remember we went from that and into the theater. This was a couple of years ago. And, and then all of a sudden they were confronted with, standing in front in a uh, with a microphone mm. you know with a hundred people that will be coming and it was like this <gasps> and I remember feeling it too like <laughs> oh my gosh well I didn't realize how intimate it was working mm-hmm. at a distance like that um and then having to to share it uh but the results are always amazing and mm. even when we do a share like if I worked with them individually and then we just share in a in a Zoom, a bigger Zoom thing. It's the missing part. Like mm. you need, you just need that. You need um, you need to have it received by someone yeah. in in real time, and it changes. It changes the energy. It changes. You can see it. I love watching watching them, especially mm-hmm. um, a lot of the storytellers uh, in the community. They, they, it's like they're like first time tellers, so it's quite beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially that first time teller. It's always so like it's raw, right? If it's the first time as a storyteller, mm-hmm. it's such a new experience that it's like everything is on the surface when they're telling that story. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's almost like I could see them. It's especially if it's if they've been working in this. It's like working in this little tube, and then all of a sudden they have to share, and they've got this microphone, and then the realization mm. of oh my god. What have I been creating? I didn't realize I was going to be exposing myself like this. And mm-hmm. then seeing them, there's like this, an adre- this adrenaline that kicks in and mm-hmm. they have to, like, it's almost like over overflows. And then they have to like experience that and get over that hump and then be able to, to rein it in and to tell. And I tell you the most beautiful part. And I always tell them that, you know, if, if what you say is r- rings true, 
then right after you're going to have people coming up to you and start to tell you their story. And mm-hmm. it, it always happens. And I'm always so happy to watch my students or my mentees in the lobby or, and, and, and I can see them holding court and people are, are standing there telling them their, mm-hmm. their grandma story, you know, mm-hmm. or it's, it's quite, uh, uh, and I know that feeling too. So I quite enjoy it. I think that is such an important experience for people to have is to have told a story that's so personal and see how it how it hits people. Because I think that that sometimes as artists, we get caught up in trying to tell a story that will appeal to everyone. And then when you do that, it appeals to nobody. Yeah, because you have to tell a story that's so true and so yours that then that's when people relate to it. They relate to the emotion. They relate to something. And that, they'll share that by telling their story as well, like you said. It resonates. It, you, that's when you know. Um, that's one of the reasons I think I really love storytelling. I, I mm. draw a lot. I'm one of those storytellers that draw a lot on memory. Um, mm. I'm a, like a memory keeper in my family. I like to mm. remember all the details and, and who's who. And I always thought, if I could be, you know, that level of truth um, and attention to detail and trying to get the clarity of what actually happened, if I can achieve that with a storytelling, when I go to write something that's imagined, you know, for theater, it still has to hit that bar. It has to ring at the same mm. level. That is my bar. Yeah. When did st- when did you start storytelling, by the way? Oh, I guess formally with the Hamilton Seven. <laughs> hmm. This uh, lovely, lovely my one of my dearest friends, Lisa Pijuan Namura, who is a multidisciplinary artist here at Hamilton. She started this group called the Hamilton Seven, and so amazing. Um, it was like Josh Taylor, who's a hip hop dancer. Uh, we've got uh, Torlu Kasik Foss, who is uh, a, a visual artist, a um, he's like, I mean, he does so many things. Um, mm-hmm. Sculptor, um, Hitoko Okada, who's like a fabric artist. There's uh, um, um, Sheldon and Darla. Um, they, they're, they've come from acting. They're, they're through and through like actors. Um, mm-hmm. Who have I missed? Dave Brennan, comedian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, I guess me and Lisa, I come from theater and, and she's, she's also a flamenco dancer. So we would meet and then we would kind of like uh, dramaturge our stories on the spot mm. and share. And we, we did a, a storytelling night once a month for like, I think two years. Mm. And I guess that's where it started at the staircase theater is where we would do it. And it was just so amazing. Like everybody had their own flavor. Everybody had their own style. Hmm. Um, and there was always like, actually there was nine of us, Corin Raymond also was there, singer, hmm. storyteller. Um, and, but there was at least seven of us on stage at any, at any, <laughs> at any show. But I guess that's where I started doing that on a regular basis. Um, and then it kind of like my process kind of like came out of that and then combined with a bunch of other stuff like theater wise. And then I keep getting called. To do hmm. to, to do um, storytelling facilitation for for all different groups and and it's I'm I'm really loving it. Hmm. And uh, 
Can you tell me about the first time you told a story on stage? How, how, what was that like? Oh, uh, I think it was, I'm thinking about the Hamilton seven. Um, good. It was good. It was a, a small crowd. Uh, all the people in our group are so loving and supportive hmm. and generous and everyone, everybody was so just really supportive and, um, hmm. And it, I, yeah, I, I think it just kept me going. It was a really great experience. Mm-hmm. Nice. You mentioned a couple of times. You've mentioned Porchlight. Can you tell me a little bit about the founding of that of that company of that 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 group? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Um, so Porchlight Theater uh, was started with myself uh, and Aaron Jan. I had tried to convince them to come to Hamilton years prior. Um, when he first graduated from this theater school and he kind of said, I can't come there. I can't come back home. Um, cause I guess he had been, he'd finished at York. Hmm. He said, I can't come back home. There's nothing there. So I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, sure. Fine. And then I was at, um, the factory theater, uh, doing through the bamboo with a week collective. And hmm. he was in the courtyard and he said, Hey, Karen, I know how to get funding now. Let's talk. <laughs> so we sat down and then we kind of made a list of all the things that we had wished existed. And so we did that. <laughs> so hmm. um, we're a Hamilton-based collective dedicated to the development and support of youth, both emerging and professional theater artists and storytellers. And we hope to exist to build a space that amplifies the voices of marginalized theater artists from the greater Hamilton area. So we're talking about stories, playwriting, explorations, mm. and hoping to take it to the next level, which also means getting paid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is always the always the, the challenge. Although Aaron has been uh, doing a lot about, uh, about helping people, you yes, know, get their funding, yeah. which is really great. <laughs> he yes, the money goblin. He's going to kill me. <laughs> the money goblin. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody call it's, him. That. Uh, go ahead. He won't <laughs> mind. He knows it's true. <laughs> So, so yeah, so that, that's been really amazing. And then last summer we did the garden project, uh, with our wonderful partners at, uh, industry. Hmm. Um, and we, because of things that some things that happened in Hamilton, we decided to take action and this was our call to action. Um, so there's like seven of us who are the founders, Rose Hopkins, Rick Banville, Anna Chatterton, Matt McFadden, Laura Welch, Aaron and I, and we are the founders of the garden project. Um, so together we, we had set out to raise, uh, seed money for black indigenous and people of color artists in Hamilton. Uh, we tried to raise $2,000 hmm. and we're like, okay, well, we'll do that, we'll do that. We'll support one artist and then we'll do mentorship. Uh, we'll pair them up with a mentor and we'll pay them also. Well, word got out and then we had a second <laughs> artist Oh, that's cool. And then we had a third mm. and then we were able to support four artists in total. We raised almost $18,000 during wow. the pandemic. Yeah. So we're hoping to happen. We're hoping to make it happen again this year because last mm. year, last year's pairings and the artists that came through, oh my gosh, it was so, so lovely. Um, and definitely worth it. Uh, Ellie Farinango, Kitokomai, Radamenon, and a group called Un- Unsettled Scores. They, they were mm. just fantastic. So we're hoping to do it again this year. Uh, and we're going to be doing that, I believe, the uh, I guess the end of June. Mm. We'll be calling for submissions for that. And we want to make it a tradition. That's, nice. that's the goal. 
That's great. That's great. Um, you mentioned um, being a mother. <laughs> and uh, is that, as, as far as like being a theater artist, is that how, how hard is it to d- juggle being a theater artist with being a mother for you? Hmm. It's harder at different times. Uh, I remember when I was, when my son was two weeks old hmm. and I went in to visit uh, the Carlos Bolosat Theater and they were doing some collective creation. And it was so nice because within the Filipino community and like children are just embraced and accepted in mm-hmm. workspaces. So it was so nice to bring the baby in and then mm. at break time have people fight over the baby. <laughs> you know, it was, so, it's so nice. And like, uh, you know, he, he has so many titos and titas in that space. Um, I did a project with Sulong theater with Catherine Hernandez and Aura Cueva called future folk. And he was a little older. So I had to leave him with my parents here and I had to drive in for that 10 o'clock rehearsal and then hmm. drive back and then pick him up and then do it all over again. Like it was intense. Mm. Oh my yeah. goodness. So, so in that sense, like, and my husband travels a lot. So a lot of that fell onto me to try to, to try to juggle him, like put mm. him somewhere. <laughs> so I don't know, in that sense, um, it's just a lot on the go. Like, it's not about you. Yeah. You know, you may want to concentrate on your script, but somebody needs, kids always need something. Yes. Yeah. So it's yeah. always a split focus kind of thing. I always feel mm. a bit f- split focused, like all the time, not as much as before, but in a different way. Um, mm. But then again, you know what? I, I'm a better artist. I'm a better artist because I'm a mom. Okay. Tell me about that. Why, why, why do you think you're a better artist? Because you're a mom. You're a mom. I think I'm a better artist because I'm a mom, because I, my, all my, all my caregiving instincts come into play especially right now with the climate of taking care you know Mm. I feel like people are more aware and are really trying to make safe spaces uh in rehearsal and being a mom it's just a natural it's it's just an extension of that Mm. you know caring for someone checking on someone are you okay I'm sensing a little bit come on let me take care of you kind of thing Mm. and then having someone do that um look, you haven't eaten. You know what? Come with me. Like there's just something about people and people recognize it. They go, oh, mm. your mom, your mom instincts are kicking in and I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. Um, so that in terms of care and just, oh my goodness, like I think about myself in my twenties trying to play a mom. Mm. And then I think about through the bamboo uh, where I had to play a mom to a 12 year old. Mm. And I didn't, have to do very much because I already, I already knew, like I knew it in my bones and my blood in my flesh, like what that Mm. felt like, like I was amazed at like, Mm. uh, yeah, it was no imagination required. I just had to Mm. be. (laughs) Is there, now one of the things, you know, there are plenty of theater artists who are mothers. Um, I think that that like you you mentioned there's there's a challenge to balancing being a mother especially with a very young child and and being a performer. 
if if a theater company was to come to you and say, what would you need as a mother to succeed as a performer? What could we give to you? Care. Care. <laughs> care. Um, mm. for Care and consideration. I, I know that in a Filipino, okay, so in a Filipino theater space, I'm not worried. Mm. I know that if I get stuck and I have to bring my boy and I can say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, you're going to sit in the corner. Here's some snacks. Here's your thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And everybody, not only is it, you know, it, it's more than okay. It, like he'll come out of that rehearsal with more uncles and aunties, titas and titos <laughs> than when he started. And it, mm. like, it is, it's such a family environment. Mm-hmm. I know that in some theater companies, that would be not cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that would not be very professional, you know, even though it is my reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish that, that, um, yeah, like I don't have to apologize. I don't have to apologize yeah. in, in most spaces that are, I don't know, I guess like cultural theater mm. like that. Um, I'd say for Sulong theater, uh, with Catherine Hernandez and Erica Cueva, we were like, I was, there was two of the uh, shows that we did and we were both pregnant in mm. the show. Um, and then after they came out, <laughs> you know, like we all had one kid and I remember us saying, okay, so if this goes further, we need to put childcare in the grant. Like mm-hmm. this just has to be a part of it. And it's like, yeah, of course. That makes sense. And it was just nice to have like women kind of going, okay, yeah, we need this. Of course. Yeah. It's it's a no-brainer. You know, but maybe someone who doesn't have kids mm. or you know, just it just wouldn't dawn on them. No. Oh, 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 oh. No. I have to say one more thing. Yes. There was this one time so last year I had a contract and I I was trying to make it work and I messaged my director. Uh, the most talented Jasmine Chen. And I said, listen, I, I, it's the first year my kid is getting on the school bus and I'm trying to figure out how to get him on the school bus. And then right after that, I have to zoom on the highway to get to you to Toronto. And I'm going to do a dress rehearsal tomorrow to see if it will work. But I just want you to know this is what I'm dealing with. And she wrote me and said, would it make your life easier if we started rehearsal at 1030? Mm. And I, I couldn't believe it. I almost cried. I was just like, yes, like, mm. because I was mm. like, I may get there at 1020. I'm so sorry, because we were supposed to start at 10. And that mm. kind of tiny consideration, I, I felt heard, I felt yeah. seen, it made the, the world of difference to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think there's there's something that 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 we do at theater school, and I don't in the in the theater, and I think we learned it in theater school. At least I did, and I wonder if it's the same for you. Where it's all about not rocking the boat. Don't rock the boat. Don't cause any trouble. Don't ask for too much. Don't don't cause any trouble. Yeah. And so, in a situation like that, of course, you approach that like you would in a other space. And look, so here's my thing. You're apologizing, and I think that in some ways, like. It should just be a no-brainer. If the if your cast members have children, 
you have to accommodate that instead of treating it like an like an annoyance. And we have to accommodate for the fact that maybe not everybody can afford childcare. Maybe they are the single caregiver. And so if they're going to be in the show, that care has to be in the budget. We have to be able to, to look at, you know, all of our cast members and we need to make our spaces that we rehearse in as welcoming and as safe and as loving as possible because some of the work we do on stage is not. Mm-hmm. It's so true. I, yeah, I totally I think, agree. And yeah. I, I love what you're saying. I'm just like, yes, inside I'm cheering. I'm cheering you on <laughs> because <laughs> it to me it's like, yeah, like all those things, like that sounds like utopia. But why like yeah. why but if you don't have if you're at the top mm-hmm. and you don't have children, yeah. If I didn't have children, maybe I wouldn't think this way. Do you know? Yeah, I do. I do. But I think that it, it comes down to, and I, I think part of the problem is we talk about people who are at the top, you know, artistic directors and things like that, as though they are disconnected. In some places they are, but it's their job to know their, 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 the people that they're working with. It's their job to know their directors, designers. It's their job to know their actors. It's their job to know what their actors need in order to succeed. And if you really want the best actor for the role, then you make accommodations for if they need childcare, if they have to come in a little later, like you have to do that. It's as far as I'm concerned, that's the one of the jobs of the artistic director. Stop acting as though you are at the top and everybody caters to you. No, you have to cater to everybody else. Otherwise you're creating a toxic space. Wow. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't that. Yeah. I totally agree. I think what you said too, about the, the mom thing, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like things are really shifting. I feel like people are always like, like for me as a mom, I'm always like, okay, what do you need? Like Mm -hmm. in in any of my sessions, I'm asking my creators, what do you need? What, Mm -hmm. what can I do to help you um, you know, to get the best out of this moment for you. And is that mm-hmm. customer service? Is that my mom, the, the mom in me? Do you know what I mean? But it just, yeah. it just benefits. It makes sense, right? Because you can see it in the artist and sometimes even just the simple asking of going, okay, before we go on, I just want to ask, hmm. do you have enough support like during mm-hmm. this time right now? Like, how are you doing? What's the situation? And then some of them, you know, some of my students, I remember connecting, especially uh, with my students at Humber. Just that simple question is so lovely how it was received. Sometimes it was like, oh, oh, uh, hmm. thank you for asking. Yeah. You know, like, I think that that's just, that's just human nature. I think that should be, we should always be doing that. To, how are we going to get the best out of each other? Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of the opposite of, 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 you know, that toxic rehearsal hall where the director rules with an iron fist and all that stuff. A few weeks back, I was talking with uh, Siobhan Richardson, who's uh, uh, an intimacy director, and mm-hmm. I was talking with uh, Nicole Winchester, who's a, a live-action role-play facilitator. Uh, uh, so, you know, role-playing games, but in person. But one of the things that I brought in Nicole for was to talk about emotional bleed and how that can affect both the, the life in the rehearsal room and outside of it. And uh, uh, Siobhan talks about that as well. But one of the things that we talked about was, was how we sort of came to this idea that on the first day, part of the first day of rehearsal 
should be everybody being able to say what they need. Oh, yes. What do you need in the rehearsal hall? If we're working on a particularly difficult play, what do you need to get through it? Or just generally, what do you need to succeed in this room? And how can we, as this temporary family that's come together to produce this play, how can we support you? Like a collective agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that um, a couple times now. And sometimes it looks like um, gathering like on the floor with cue cards and that question, what is it that you need, you know, Mm. from everyone and in this rehearsal space to get through this? And then, so you Mm. make your list and then it gets shared Mm -hmm. and then it gets posted so that we can Mm. be mindful. um, And it's, it, it, it's just uh, it's a beautiful way to work. It kind of levels everything right off the top and like makes yeah. people more mindful of each other in the space. Yeah, I love that practice. Yeah, I think I think that's really that's really um, what you're doing is something that I think is super important. And that is like literally just like we're going to be working in this room and we are basically going to be taking our emotional clothes off for however long this rehearsal process lasts. So we need to support each other. Oh, yeah. I know. There's no other work like it, is there? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, the relationships that you're going to form. I think it, and it all feeds in. It all feeds mm-hmm. into the work on stage. And Yeah. Yeah. So, Karen, just as we start to draw to a close, one of the questions that I've been asking pretty much every episode uh, the, of everybody is, is a question about joy. You know, for this entire pandemic time, We've all had our ups and downs and sometimes as as the theaters stay closed and we're doom scrolling on our phones or whatever it is that we're doing, we forget to think about the things that give us joy. So my question to you is, what's been giving you joy that you'd like to share with us? Hmm. What's been giving me joy? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is is family. Um, Mm. You know, I've bubbled with my parents who are in their eighties and, and also, and, and so we've, we've been able to spend time with them and, and also just teaching the boys to, to reframe. I mean, I think that's my survival technique, whether I'm working in a restaurant or busing tables or whatever. You just have to reframe and look at all the the good stuff. And honestly, mm. it could be a lot worse. I, I mean, mm-hmm. we have the, we are very privileged to be able to mm. bubble and to keep ourselves safe. We have a lovely yeah. home. Um, we can work from home. Like we're so privileged. And, mm. and I think uh, the joy of creating the joy within our little bubble and just like uh, um, cocooning, with our family mm. and enjoying the small things uh, like having dinner by the water, mm. finding some water somewhere to eat in front of has been mm. really lovely. Uh, we have a tree house now. So uh, we go there and just kind of like decompress that gives us joy. There's a, so it's all the small things, all the small daily things and that, and trying to find that within all this crazy chaos outside of this bubble. 
<laughs> yeah. But I think that, that you know, what you're mentioning, the, this is those small things and those, they may seem like tiny things, but they're moments of calm and they're moments of, 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 of really quiet intimacy among a family. And those little moments are like the world can be chaotic, but you find this, this really calm and beautiful center right in the middle. And with that, you can find your, your center, eat in front of water, and then you can, it's a little bit easier to face the world. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. That's so true. Like we've been very, we've done everything that we can to not raise our cortisol levels. That has been like <laughs> my goal. Like I'm homeschooling the kids. Like I just like whatever, I just try to take the stress out of it. You know, mm. like having, if the kids went to school, they would be have the daily exposure and then I would have right. to worry about my parents. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know what? If everyone's going to go to school that way, we're going this way. We're going right. to go in a different direction, which also teaches the kids, you know what? We can make a decision for our family um, mm. and go in a different direction. And it's worked yeah. so far. So, so we'll just keep, we'll just keep, keep ourselves safe and calm and just find the joy and also really make an effort. I mean, really, again, you know, like within my storytelling groups, it's been like this little extension um, and like uh, to other people's little bubbles like hmm. over the internet and yeah. to, to see how they're doing also. And you realize that those are the little moments, you know, that you can, you can spread some joy. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for contacting me. This has been great. Great. 